The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, uh, verse number 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now these are verses that I have never tackled together in one setting. But I'm going to be quite honest with you, and forgive me, i got a feeling I'm going to weave some testimony, personal testimony into this message uh, tonight. The thing that I've been studying for the last three months more than any other topic is the topic, Old Testament and New Testament, of anointing. We know the word. Even those of us that were in the Baptist church know the word anointing. Uh, But it is heavily used in spirit-filled churches, charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches. It's an overused word in my opinion. Um, I've heard about anointed Salads. I've heard about anointed hairdos. I've heard about anything from anointed music to anointed sermons to anointed parents and anointed relationships. And listen, I mean, we can overuse words, but the fact of the matter is, just because it's overused doesn't mean that it doesn't have some very serious biblical significance. And I'm going to go out on a limb and tell you at the very beginning of this message, you need to live an anointed life. I don't know where you are. I don't know what your primary function or calling or task is. I don't know what's defining or describing your life right now. But I'm just going to go out on this limb. It's a real sturdy limb. I can jump up and down all night on it. It's not going to break. You need to be anointed. You need the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life. Now, that should cause you to hunger, not panic, but to hunger. Because here's the best news. You can be anointed. You can be anointed as often as you want to whatever degree you want, because God is not selfish with His anointing. And let me tell you why. There's only one way that we can consistently glorify the Lord, and that is to live in His anointing. And anointing is not you trying better. It's not you doing more. It's not you necessarily waking up earlier or staying up later. It's not, you know, five more Bible studies that you've got to attend. Anointing for life and ministry comes primarily through intimacy with the Lord Jesus. And that intimacy is created in your abiding with Him. And I will say, because I can't even cover this tonight, but I will say that one of the things that guys like me and leaders in churches must begin to focus on is teaching people what it means to abide in the Lord. 
Because it is that abiding that produces the anointing, and it is the anointing that brings Jesus Christ greater glory for our lives. This passage of Scripture focuses on one man receiving favor from the Lord through an anointing, and another man experiencing forfeiture of his anointing because of the way he was living. So I'm going to encourage us towards one man, and I'm going to warn us about the other man. And I think in the midst of it, God may even provide some breakthrough for some tonight. So let's look in verses 1 through 11. I'm going to go over some verses, uh, or, or reference some verses that I didn't even read. Know the context here, okay? The context is that, remember, last time we were together, we talked about the reality that God had told King Saul, who was stubborn, he was halfway obedient, he was self-willed, he always thought he knew better than the Lord and the Lord's prophet, and so Saul was constantly fumbling. And the Lord had him on a very short leash and did not extend to him massive amounts of grace. And so Saul, very early in his kingship, had been told by Samuel, hey, look, Saul, you're not going to have a dynasty because you disobeyed the Lord. Saul didn't respond well to that because a little later on he disobeyed the Lord in an even more severe way. And Samuel had to go to him. It's the underbelly of leadership. Samuel had to say, your kingdom has been taken from you. And so it lets Saul know that, yeah, you're still wearing the crown, but you don't wear the power anymore. And so in this passage, we actually see a glimpse of what occurs when Saul is forfeiting. But before that happened, God had come to Samuel early in this chapter, chapter 16, and he said, Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to find a man named Jesse. I've chosen for myself a king out from among his sons. So Israel, the people, chose the first king, and it was a disaster. When that king had to be put aside, God said, I'm going to handle it this time. I'm going to pick a king, and I'm going to pick a good one. Now, you're going to find out in a minute, the very first time that this new king's name is used, it's used in a very unique way for the very first time. And I'm going to show you that, that the Lord purposefully puts this in the Scripture. So now Samuel's at Jesse's house, and so he's gone through Jesse's big boys. Jesse gathers his sons together. Samuel's there on a mission from God, kind of a Blues Brothers-esque kind of thing, and he's on a mission from God, and he's going to anoint the new king. He says, Samuel, bring all your sons up here. We don't know how much they knew what was going on. So all of the big boys of Jesse's sons are brought before Samuel, and Samuel looks at the first one, and he kind of reminds Samuel of Saul. And, and Samuel says, oh, this has got to be the guy. He's tall, he's big, he's good looking. Got to be the guy. And the Lord begins to train Samuel. I'm going to get to the verses in a minute. The Lord begins to train Samuel, and he says, this. He says, Samuel, that's not the guy I've picked. That's not him. Even Samuel, a spiritual giant, in my opinion, fell into the trap of believing you can discern the Lord's ways through carnal eyes. Samuel was looking at what looked good on the outside, and that's where this famous verse comes from that is quoted and sometimes misquoted all over the place, that God looks at the heart, man looks at the outward appearance. And that's right here in this passage. This is where God says, no, Samuel, it's not the tall, dark, and handsome dude. I look at the heart, you guys look at the outward appearance. So Samuel gets humble, and Jesse brings all his other sons, and God says, not him. Not him. Not him either. Nope, not him. Not him. Until finally, there's no more boys left. And so that's where we pick up here. So look with me in verse number 10, and this is where we see how God passes over man's obvious choice. We're going to learn tonight how God works. First of all, there was a reasonable process. That's verse number 10. Jesse made all of his seven sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, Lord, the Lord has not chosen these. It's an awkward moment. 
Samuel's there on a mission for God. He's got his horn of oil. He's ready to anoint the next king. But Jesse's like, these are all my boys. And Samuel says, the Lord has not given me a word about any of these other than to say it's not him and it's not him all throughout the kids. So there was this reasonable process as Samuel was trying to discern the will of the Lord. He went as he could, the best that he could, doing what he could. But God had not yet put his mark on it. So look down at verse number 11. There was this lingering unease. Samuel finally looks over to Jesse and he says, is this it? Are, are, are all of your sons here? I mean, think about it. You're the prophet. You're the prophet in Israel. You're not the judge anymore. They've got a king now, and, but you're still the prophet. Samuel's the prophet. He's used to getting words from the Lord. He's a man of God. And yet God sent him on a mission and said, I'm going to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And as far as Samuel's concerned, all the boys are right there in front of him. And yet God's will has not been clearly specified. And so it was kind of a lingering moment of unease. And then look further in verse number 11. Here we see the natural oversight. This happens so often in the kingdom. Jesse says, oh yeah, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Here we go. God's first thought, we're going to find out, was Jesse's afterthought. God's number one pick was Jesse's last pick. It wasn't even a pick. It was an, oh yeah, I forgot about him. So you, you know the story. This is little David. This is the man who would be the greatest king of Israel up until the time of King Jesus. And so David at this point is a kid in the youth group. He's, he's a millennial. He's just a young guy, and he is doing the lowly task. He's got big brothers that are, are guys with you know, beards and man hair, and they're just big, big bold dudes. And, and, and David's out there, and he's taking care of the sheep. And, and so all of the big guys have been passed through. And then Jesse says, yeah, I forgot about the runt. Yeah, but, but Samuel, he's just out keeping the sheep. Let's not, even, let's not even bother with him. So watch this. There came a moment for deeper consideration. These are important moments in the kingdom. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we're not going to sit down until he comes here. They had a big feast that was planned. They came up, they did a sacrifice, they were going to have a big feast, and Samuel know how to really get the process back into gear. He says, we ain't going to eat until you bring your boy up here. So Jesse's like, go get him. And so they run out, they bring and fetch David, and David is coming in from the sheepfold. Now, let's just pause here for a minute, because right now all this is is history, and it doesn't necessarily fit uh, you know, where we're living right now. But I, I can promise you a couple of things. You're going to go through this process in your life. You're going to have decisions to make. You're going to be, there are going to be moments where God's will is not clear. You're going to have on the one hand this good thing you can do, on the other hand this good thing you can do, and then there are other times where maybe it's not two good things, but it's the, well, it reminds me of the election, the lesser of two evils. You're not like, what do I do? It's not clear to me. And so you're, you're sitting there and you need to know the Lord's will and how easy it is for you and I to default to common sense, to what looks the best, to what appears the most press impressive that might serve us the best, the thing that makes the most sense to us, what are other people choosing, how do other people evaluate, what do other people say, and we get into this process sometimes where we know we have to make a choice, we're not sure what to do, and it is very easy to look on the outward appearance of every situation and treat uncommon kingdom things with normal common sense. And so as we're looking at this, Samuel refuses to give in. He says, no, 
go get the runt, let's at least take a look at them. And so let's go down into verses 12 through 13. This is where we get to salute God as sovereign. More than a salute, we get to bow down before Him as sovereign. How many of you know that God is not obligated to answer all of our questions? Does anybody know that besides me? Yeah. Uh, we get into a lot of trouble when we start getting into a season where we feel like the Lord owes us an explanation, and sometimes um, He doesn't give us one. And He still expects us to trust Him implicitly. Look at this right here. God is not able, obligated to explain His criteria to man. He's about to make a choice, and to everybody else in the room it makes no sense. So here was the unexplored option for the new leader of Israel. Jesse sent and brought him in. Now look at the description here. This is weird English language for us, not words we use, or not the first one. He was ruddy and beautiful eyes and was handsome. All right, we do know that David was young. He was a teenager, maybe around the age of 15. And the Bible describes him in this way, that he was ruddy. Now I did the best that I could do in studying this word out, and it's just a word that indicates red, and there's really only two options. You, you know the, the boys' faces before they, they shave, and their baby smooth skin, and they're running, they're working, they're playing, and they get flushed cheeks, and they, they just look babyish. They're, they're, they're boys, but they're, they, they have that red face, and the smooth skin, and, and, and no facial hair to cover it up. And so that could have been what it was talking about, or it may be that David was redheaded, which would have been very uncommon in Israel. Either way his coloring was distinct but it also says that he has these beautiful eyes and he was very handsome. It, it gives the, the vibe that in the midst of all of his brothers, big grown men with beards and hair, you know, they didn't shave their beards back in that day. They were like Duck Dynasty, you know, 3,000 years ago. And that was just part of what being a man was. And then there's little boy David with the smooth skin and his naive look. And it's almost giving the, the emphasis that David was portrayed in, in almost a, an effeminate, youthful naivete. That, that he, was, he was delicate compared to his big brawny brothers. And so when we see his brothers, they seem like men. When we hear this description of David, he just seems like a boy. And that's why he wasn't thought about as a potential candidate for kingship. That's why he wasn't recognized as a possibility to be the next leader in Israel, because nobody would have thought looking at this guy, this little teenage boy, that he would be the one that God would pick. They would look at all the big brothers and said, which one of these fine specimens? I, I think somebody in here is going through a season. There may be several somebodies that are going through here. And right up before you is something that makes sense, but you've got a disquieted spirit about it. You're in a place where you're going to have to make some choices or a choice, and, and you're thinking, well, this just makes sense. And yet, something inside of you is a little unsettled about it. I, I'm going to encourage you. I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but if you're disquieted in your spirit about something, the last thing you need to do is rush to move hastily, to move quickly to barge your way into a situation. Sometimes we, we call this faith, and it's really not. It's the kind of, kind of display that gets Saul in trouble. But we think, well, I'm just going to make a decision, and I, I'm sure the Lord will clean it up if it's not the right one. Now, d does, does that honor the Lord? And I'm going to tell you, I've done it more than I want to admit. And there is grace for it, but man, that grace has to find you when you are reaping what you have sown. 
And when you, when you sow in haste and you make decisions hastily and you lean to your own understanding, there are repercussions. God's not going to abandon you in the backwash of your mistake, but it does become difficult at times. And so this unexplored option of David is now standing before Samuel. David, David doesn't have a clue. I mean, he didn't even get invited to the pre-meal meeting. I mean, he's out there working, and now he's standing there. I just see him as a youth group. like, hey, Dad, what's going on? Hey, oh, Samuel's here. Hey, Prophet Samuel, how you doing? And, and the big brothers, and all of a sudden it's probably dawning on David, oh, I've, I've walked into something. What's going on here? Now watch this. God just takes over. Yes, sir. This is where God starts making decisions, and he doesn't ask anybody's advice. He just starts being God. Look at verse 12, an unmitigated command to obey. So the Lord says, and Samuel's the only one that hears this. This is a word deposited, downloaded to Samuel's mind and heart. Arise, anoint him. This is him. So right there in the scene, when not a single person in the whole scene was thinking that David would be God's will, David was God's will. And Samuel gets humbled because Samuel's thinking it's big brother over here or maybe one of the other ones. And God, as soon as David comes in, God says to Samuel, who was obviously reclining in some way, get up, Samuel, take your horn. This is the next king of Israel. It's a, it's a significant moment. It's a shift. God is going to be raising up a new one over the next several years. David would receive his anointing that day. He receives his identity as the next king of Israel, but he doesn't immediately get to move into the activity of being the king of Israel. Let me just give you this. God will make sure that you are secure in your identity before he dispatches you to get lost in all of the activity. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that, and, and this is epidemic, uh, Jose and I were talking about this over dinner tonight, how easy it is for us as Christians to derive our identity from all of the activity we do. And that only works as long as you've got that activity going on, but then when God takes that activity away, if your identity is attached to it, you lose your identity and you don't know who you are. And so what does God do? Look at the wisdom of God. God says... Arise and anoint David, this is he. And so right there in verse number 13, for everybody to see, here's the undeniable choice of God on display. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, don't miss this, in the midst of his brothers. In the midst of his brothers. Uh, I don't have time to take you to 1 Samuel 17, but I believe his brothers got bitter about that and stayed bitter for a while because when David shows up on the scene with Goliath, who gets all over David about even showing up? It's his brothers. They're all over him because here's the thing, they're all strutting in there, okay, Samuel's here, you know, he's going to pick somebody for something. I'm not sure they knew what was going on, but they all get passed over. And then David gets chosen, and right there in front of all his big brothers, I just see David with this kind of goofy, innocent smile, and the beard, I mean, the, the oil is running down his head. He doesn't even have a beard to catch it. It's just going straight down him, and David's just standing there dripping with Samuel's oil. And it's done on display. But here's what I want to share with you. Let's put ourselves in that position. All of a sudden, the prophet in Israel has revealed to us through the anointing 
that we will be the king of Israel. Or if you're female and you want to use this, the queen of Israel, the top dog in Israel, it's going to be you. Now, there is in our generation such a strong spirit of presumption that many people would think, okay, I've got the oil, give me the throne, give me the scepter, give me the palace, give me the privileges, give me all that, I've got the anointing, now give me all that comes with it. And that's not what God does with David. God gives David the identity of king and anoints him, but watch what happens in the rest of the passage. In the midst of the brothers, he's anointed. But now watch this. God is sovereign over what he does with leaders. This is so important for all of us, and it does apply to those who are non-leaders, but in this context we're dealing with leaders here, three of them that I'm going to highlight. First, God in this moment tears down walls for David. Look at the result of this physical anointing, the oil on David. Look what the Word of God says. He tears down walls for David. The Bible says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. From that day forward, the Holy Spirit moves upon young David, the millennial kid in the youth group. And it's just, he's soaked, he's saturated. It's a rare occasion, by the way, in the Old Testament where you see the Holy Spirit come upon somebody and stay. Most of the time when you see the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody in the Old Testament, He comes upon that person, that person does a great mighty act for the glory of God. When that act is completed, the Holy Spirit seems to withdraw and they go back to just a a normalized life of faith. But the Bible is very specific here in the language that in this moment in Old Testament history for Israel, the Holy Spirit from that day, it was an actual day on the calendar, it was an actual event in, in Jesse's household, it was actual oil that ran down David's head, and that oil symbolized God's will for the nation. And because the calling was so high, the privilege was so high, the need was so great, David couldn't do it apart from the abiding of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. I like that, man. I like that. Oh, Lord, in the name of Jesus, rush upon us in this day. Move upon us, Lord. Be, Be gloriously but graciously violent with your people and come upon us strongly to where we're not sitting around wondering, was that the Lord or was that that person just having an emotional fit or showing off? I'm telling you, when, when the Holy Spirit really begins to move, One of the effects of it is when he's really moving, most of the people aren't asking, was that God? Because you'll know. And so the Holy Spirit rushes upon David. I'm like, tell me more. What happened? What did David do? Is that when he got his musical anointing? Is that when he got his leadership anointing? Did the, the lion and the bear come after the anointing? You know, we really don't know the timeline. We know that in a next chapter, David's giving some of his pedigree, but some time has passed. Did, was David able to subdue the lion and the bear protecting the sheep after and only because of the anointing? I don't know about you. I would probably have to have an anointing from God to go after a bear. You know, I, I don't think I'm going to go up to a lion in my own power. And so I'm thinking that some of the things that David, that are described, describe David's life, happen subsequent to this. The one thing I do know is David, after the anointing, after the Holy Spirit rushes upon him and stays with him, David doesn't get the throne for over 20 years. 
20 years. A word to those of us who might struggle with impatience, who might wonder, why haven't you done X, Y, or Z yet, God? To those of us maybe who know our identity in Jesus, know what He's placed in our heart, know what we could do if only the Lord would open up the door. And sometimes I'm telling you, I'm just being transparent, it is possible for God-honoring, Spirit-filled Christians to enter into temporary seasons of being frustrated with God, saying, why aren't you doing this yet? I've been there. I know all about it. David receives his anointing. There's no parade. There's no hail the king. Do you know what David did? He went back to the sheepfold. He went back to taking care of the sheep. David had it bad. Amen? (laughs) He He goes back from this epic moment of anointing and receiving identity. We don't know how much he understood, but I know one thing. David didn't think that was an average day, and yet he went right back to where he was before the anointing came. Why is that necessary? I'm going to hit this again. I just feel very strongly. Um, The greater the calling, the greater the assignment, the more tempering we need. We need to spend some time in the sheepfold even after we've been anointed for the palace. We need to understand that we can receive the assignment, the identity, the calling, and the anointing, but God is not obligated to kick the door off the hinges and say, now go at it, girl. And it's a test. I don't know that, well, I do know. I, I, I would say... In my, my life, my calling, my ministry, and I told you I was going to share a little personal testimony, I received too much opportunity too soon. I, I was on staff at Meadow two and a half years, three and a half years, two and a half years after I was born again. I had enough Bible knowledge to make me obnoxious, but not enough of experience walking with Jesus to make me useful. God in His providence saw fit to allow that to happen, but I'm going to tell you, there. I look back on some of those seasons, and I actually believe there were seasons, short ones by God's grace, that I actually did more harm than good. Not because I wasn't sincere, but because I didn't know what it was like to wait and let God develop me inwardly before He turned me loose outwardly. I want to encourage some of you that right now the best thing might be for you is for God to keep it on pause for a little bit longer. It's not because He's mean, it's because He's wise. That He may leave you in a less than desirable situation, a a less than a a pleasing circumstance. He He may actually hold you right where you are, and it doesn't mean He didn't call you. It doesn't mean He hasn't anointed you. It doesn't mean that you don't have this very real destiny that He is leading you into, but He's leading in His way because He's sovereign, and He gets to do that. That's one of the perks of being God. He gets to do whatever He wants to do, and whatever He does is good. Even when it doesn't align itself with what we want Him to do. 
And so God tears down the walls for David. David received it all, but God said, the first thing I want, to, want you to do under this anointing, anointing is I, I, I want to see if you'll just be faithful. And so we move on to Samuel. Now watch this. There's three leaders. There's David, Saul, and Samuel. Oh, by the way, let me, let me just say this. The first time David's name is ever mentioned in Scripture is in verse 13. You never see David's name in the Bible. He's referenced in these earlier verses. But the first time you see the name David about King David, it is in the context of the Holy Spirit rushing upon him. I love that. The very first time you see somebody filled with the Spirit is in the book of Genesis, and this man is an artist. He's in the arts. That's the first time the Spirit, the Holy Spirit filling somebody is mentioned. I think his name is Aholiab or something like that. And he's a craftsman, he's an artist, and it's the first time it's ever mentioned. But the first time David is ever mentioned is in conjunction with the Holy Spirit rushing upon him. I would like to take that and extrapolate this for just a second. You don't have to agree with me if you don't want to, but give me a moment here. I want your name to be mentioned regularly in connection with what the Holy Spirit is doing. I, I, when people hear your name and my name, I want them to think a Spirit-filled woman, a Jesus-glorifying woman, a God-fearing man, a, a Bible-saturated, Bible-soaked, uh, walking-in-the-Spirit anointed child of God. When they hear your name, that's the best thing they can think about you. It, it, it might be a good thing if they say, oh, you're talented, or you're gifted, or you're blessed. Those are not bad things. But the best thing that could ever be said about us when it comes to what, who we are and what we're doing in the kingdom of God is, man, that man, that woman, that young person has an anointing from God. And the degree to which we are called, I'm going to tell you, the, the, the great need for us is to slow down. If it means spending an extra month or 10 or, or years in the sheepfold, then so be it. Please, please think of this with me. Y'all are listening so good tonight because I'm all over the map. But think about this. The Son of God lived in 30 years of anonymity to prepare for three and a half years of ministry. Amen. Dispatched from heaven in a perfect culture of worship and paradise where he was never, ever misunderstood, never resisted outside of the rebellion of Satan, never looked upon and scorned, never rejected. And he willingly left that and he came to earth. And when he came to this very city of Bethlehem where the Holy Spirit rushes upon David, it's the same city. That's where Jesus was born. And in the same city, the first king, David, came with anointing. In that same city for 30 years years. As Jesus moved, yes, he moved to Nazareth back and forth, but it began in Bethlehem. And for 30 years, he looked like everybody else. Nobody would have guessed this was Messiah. But when the fulfillment of time came from God the Father, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. And what happened? The Holy Spirit descends upon him and abided upon him in the form of a dove. And for three and a half years, we clearly see the testimony that in his active ministry, he always did those things which pleased the Father. Uh, I, I want that for us in these last days. 
I want to be able to, to, to walk in that level of intimacy with Jesus and experience that level of anointing. The pulpit, that's easy anointing. This is, this is the easiest place to, for me to experience anointing. I want it at home. I, I want it on the 535th question in a row from Landon asking me, why, why, why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I need the anointing. Pray for me. Amen. I, th- I mean, I want that. I want that when I'm shepherding my family. I want that in the midst of leading a staff or counseling the bereaved or, or, or just being a friend. I don't want to do this stuff in my strength. And when you're thinking about it, you don't either. But the problem is, is we don't think about it enough because we're dictated to by long list of demands and short hours in a day. And so we move and we live so many uh, on multiple lever- levels according to common sense and reason. Well, quickly with Samuel. God redirects a pathway for Samuel. This would be the, pretty much the last historic act Samuel ever did in his ministry. There were a few other things where he's mentioned, but the next time we see him, he's rising up from the dead, and that'll be next week. But in this moment, God redirects his pathway. The Bible just says Samuel rose up and went back to Ramah. Samuel goes up. He listens for the Lord. By the way, let's not just talk about David being under an anointing. Samuel heard God when nobody else did. Samuel's in the room with Jesse, a bunch of his boys, and then David, and Samuel's the only one that hears from the Lord directly, arise, anoint him, this is the one. So he's operating in a level of anointing that nobody else in the room probably understands, but this is that private intimacy that he had cultivated with God over a lifetime to the, to, the, to the result that he could hear God speak directly to him. Now, I, I was taught as a, as in, in, in the Baptist denomination that God doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I've been so encouraging in this message. Let me finish encouraging. Let me just tell you, he can do whatever he wants to do. Yes. He can do whatever he wants to do. God doesn't bow to hyper-dispensationalism. God doesn't say, well, I would love to say something, but the theologians say I can't. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you, I have not heard him with the audible voice, but I have met some very credible people who probably 20 years ago I would have said, you're a nut, but now I believe with all my heart. No, when God wants to speak, he he reserves the right to speak audibly. But I'm going to tell you something, he probably only does that to a few that he can trust. And so if we ever want to hear it, we need to become the kind of people who have that intimacy with him. The Bible speaks regularly, it says the Lord shares his secrets with some. Shares his secrets. That's close, that's intimate, that's precious, and that's priceless. Listen, I don't mind somebody slinging a drive-by Bible verse at me. I'll take whatever I can get if God wants to speak. But that's a far cry from being able to just audibly hear the Lord whisper your name and say, I want you to do this. Uh, I don't have time to talk about prophecy, but in upcoming weeks we will. And one of the beautiful things about the gift of prophecy is that God uses people to speak on his behalf in ways that build up and edify and encourage. And Paul said, if you're going to go after a spiritual gift, go after that one. So Samuel goes back home to Ramah. It's a touching scene. He knows that that's the last king he'll ever anoint. And I see him finishing his work with an unwavering walk, taking his horn of oil, gathering those that went to Bethlehem with him and saying, all right, boys, we got 11 miles to get back home. We better start going. 
And so he marches back. And so God redirects Samuel's pathway and sends him back home. He kind of fades off the pages of Samuel, the book of First and Second Samuel at this point. So go down to verse 14 and we'll talk about the scary part. And this is intense. I almost left it out, but I didn't want to. I didn't think I could, I could leave with a good conscience. God closes the door on Saul. Be careful how you hear this. Father, I just ask you in the name of Jesus to protect us from the spirit of condemnation and accusation right now, because this is fertile ground for people to experience the accusing voice of the enemy, and that is not my aim here. I want us to listen. I want us to observe. I want us to be warned if necessary, but I also want us to see how God works. And so God closes the door on Saul. Look at what it says. It says, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that day forward. Verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. That will tie your theology in knots. Let's let the Bible be the Bible, okay? One of the pillars of Newbridge Church is that we believe in the authority of the Word of God. This coming Sunday, I'm going to be starting a series called Four Threads. It's going to talk about four primary things that God has stitched this church together with. Four threads. And the first one we'll talk about Sunday is the authority of the Word of God. We must be disciplined people to allow the Bible to be the Bible and not edit it and not rewrite it and not reinterpret it to fit our comfortable narrative, but just let the Bible speak and let it remain authoritative over our lives. And my Bible tells me here that as the Holy Spirit was rushing upon and remaining with David, in that same, the next verse, the Holy Spirit withdraws from Saul. That Saul had experienced, by the way, also being filled with the Spirit. You can read earlier in his life, he had been filled with the Spirit. He had prophesied. People had come up with a phrase that said, it's even Saul among the prophets. So Saul had experienced in victory and battle. He had done some things in the power of the Spirit, but because he hardened his heart, because he believed halfway obedience was something that was fine with God, because he lied, but primarily the chief sin of Saul's reign was that Saul was a leader who was always afraid of what the people thought. He always wanted to make sure that he could figure out a way to make God happy, but still have his reputation intact with the people. And there's a word for that, idolatry. And so God had warned Saul twice, and now this was the moment where God withdrew his spirit off of Saul. And in the absence of Saul being in the spirit, under the spirit, or having the spirit upon him, however you want to describe it, in the absence of the protecting presence of God, an evil spirit, and it's said here to come from God. I don't know the dynamics of all of that. I'm just going to let the Bible speak. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit withdrew from Saul and an evil spirit was sent to Saul. And from that day forward, Saul's life was tormented. I guess this is what I want us to look at. I think most people believe they can live in between David and Saul. And what I want to say is if you try to live in between David and Saul, you're going to end up living like Saul. If we try to live in this neutral, I don't know about paying the price for living an anointed life and sacrificing and getting serious. I don't know if I'm going to want to develop this intimacy. It just sounds foreign to me. Can't I just show up to church on Sunday? Hey, look, man, I tithe. Does, does that cut me any slack with the Lord? Or, you know, I, I serve every now and then. And a lot of people want to live this life, Trey, that, that is just kind of, what's everybody else doing? I guess that's what the high mark is. I'll do that too. And I, I'm going to tell you, I think what is coming 
if I can risk it here, I think what is coming to the church in America is going to be so intense, so heated, I do believe that at some point it will be violently in opposition against us. That the average Christian life will not endure. And I'm going to tell you, when I use the word Christian, I'm talking about nominal Christian in name only. The average churchgoer. The moral, right-wing, southern, Bible Belt conservative, which somehow that seems to be the definition of many for biblical Christianity. It's not. I'm going to tell you something. You can be as moral and as right-wing and as conservative and as southern as you want to be and still be a two-fold child of hell. And so when we're looking at that, that's not going to save anybody. That's not going to be enough to endure. That's not going to keep you from recanting your faith when all of hell breaks loose against the church. But what will is if we posture ourselves and position ourselves to be a, a, a saint like David saying, Lord, I know what I am apart from you, therefore I don't want to be apart from you. I will abide with you. I will press into you. I will seek you. I will pursue you. I will chase after you with all of my life because I want to be with you and I want you to be all over me. That is the kind of life that when all of hell comes, comes against, while everybody else is on the top of the valley trembling, we'll be like David who saw the giant defying the armies of the living God and we'll run down into the valley and say, you will not defy my God. And we'll stand and we'll endure. Saul is the saddest life study in all of the Old Testament in my opinion. And there were some jacked up people in the Old Testament. Saul to me is the saddest because he had all of the potential. He could have been great. And he chose not to be. Every single one of us in this place has it better than David and Saul. That's right, you heard me. You have it better than King David. King David did not have the awareness of all of the goodness of God that you have. He has revealed himself in this beautiful book of his. He has indwelt you with his own personhood, child of God. That means the Holy Spirit lives within you. It's not an anointing that has to be thrown from the great vast distance from heaven and you hope it lands on you. You have the anointer living in you. It's an inside out anointing. You have everything that you need. The only thing that might prevent any of us from living and walking in the favor of God and eventually in the absence of the favor of God experiencing the forfeiture of God. Talking about anointing and presence and blessing and power. The only thing that I think can make that a reality in your life is if you let it. If you don't want it, you'll never have it. And if you do want it, and I mean if you really want it, it's yours. God's not tucked away in the back corner of heaven playing peekaboo with you. Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again, not to get you to heaven. That's not why he came, friends. That is not, that's a benefit of what, what he came to do. But that's not why he came. If that was the reason why Jesus came and did all that he did, he would save you and then kill you. (laughs) 
Okay, mission accomplished, you're saved, now come to heaven, right? Mm -mm. He came to manifest the reality of His glory through you while you're on earth. He came to make you a holy billboard for His glorious name. He came to put you in high definition, neon, flashing before the... You say, Jeff, that just sounds, I don't think so. Really? Well, Jesus said you're a city that's set on a hill. He said, you're a lamp, please don't put a bushel on it or a basket on it. No, He actually said, let your good works so be displayed before everybody that they glorify your Father which is in heaven. So He didn't want to save you and then whisk you away to heaven. He said, I'm going to save you, I'm going to turn you loose on earth. Oh, glory to God, y'all are not feeling me tonight, but I'm feeling it, hallelujah. I'm telling you what, oh Jesus, help me. By the way, when I say Jesus like that, I'm really talking to him. I'm not being uh, irreverent with his name. Sometimes I just want to say, hey, you know, I'm just like, hey, Jesus. I think that God is looking for just some holy hunger in you. And I actually think you already have it. I just think when we're hungry for spiritual things, we reach for the closest thing at hand to satisfy the hunger. And so we're filling that holy hunger with carnal things. And if we will just wait in the sheep field, resting in our identity, knowing that we're anointed of God, what did David do when he was in the sheep field? Uh, He just wrote little ditties like Psalm 23. (laughs) David wasn't out there, you know, just picking bugs out of sheep wool, he was worshiping. He was serving, he was writing, he was waiting on the Lord. And when the time came, and it took a bit, about 22 years before David sat on the unified throne of both the southern and the northern areas, he sat on the unified throne and they crowned him king over Israel. And I'm going to tell you, he still had the anointing.